0: Good evening. This evening I'm going to talk about a group of cancers which are very important and are quite different from the ones I've previously been talking about in this series on cancers and those are the lymphomas, leukemias and myeloma. These are cancers of the blood cells and bone marrow Uh, and my overall message in this, uh, this lecture which is going to be relatively high level because there are a lot of them and this is a very fast moving field is that the outlook for these cancers has improved substantially for lymphomas for leukemia and for myeloma some of them are curable and others are treatable that means they're not completely gone but treatment means that people can live with them as a chronic condition rather like, for example, with diabetes. And for many people, they may live with them for years or even decades. Now the cells you have uh, in your bone marrow and in your blood uh, start off with stem cells. And these can then turn into the white cells, which are largely uh, uh, around uh, protection from infection and indeed protection from cancer, which we'll come back to. Uh, or the myeloid cells, which can turn into a different sort of white cell, which is important for fighting infection, uh, but also red cells, uh, which carry oxygen, and platelets, important for clotting. And it is important just to think through what blood does, because that uh, explains why some of the symptoms people have with lymphoma, leukemia, and myeloma occur. The first group of cells are the white cells, Uh, And these uh, broadly fight infection uh, and also uh, detect uh, abnormal cells, including early cancer cells. If they're not working, either because they've uh, been driven out by other cells uh, or because they're actually functionally not working well, uh, people can get repeated infections. Then you have the red cells, and these transport oxygen around the body. And if... People start to lose those, they can become anemic and they become very tired uh, and breathless. And then you have uh, platelets, which are very important for clotting. We all get cuts and knocks uh, all the way through our lives. Uh, And if you have very low platelets or the platelets are not working well, people may get bleeding or bruising, which they normally would not get. So the blood uh, is a a remarkable series of cells, uh, which uh, service in many ways. These cancers, lymphomas, leukemias, and myeloma, uh, occur over the entire age spectrum. Uh, Different cancers have different ages where they tend to occur, but they can be from uh, early childhood right through to late old age. And this is different from many of the cancers we've considered in uh, previous lectures in this series. To get some idea of scale, uh, in the UK... Um, uh, There are around uh, 10,000 new cases uh, and just under 5,000 deaths a year from leukaemia. There are around 2,000 cases, uh, but only around 300 deaths from Hodgkin lymphoma. Around 14,000 cases and just under 5,000 deaths from non-Hodgkin lymphoma uh, and uh, just under 6,000 cases of myeloma. So these are important cancers Uh, although not as common as things like breast cancer or prostate cancer, bowel cancer, and lung cancer we've considered in previous talks. They are, however, particularly important as cancers of childhood. Fortunately, children get very few cancers, but uh, of the cancers they get, uh, leukemia and lymphoma are particularly uh, important causes. And in this uh, graph, what you have is the three commonest cancers at different ages along the pathway. In adulthood, cancers we've previously been considering, like breast cancer or prostate cancer, are extremely important. Uh, but in children, leukemia, lymphoma and uh, the third one, uh, brain, brain tumors uh, are uh, predominate. But as I say, they are very rare, fortunately. In contrast to the cancers we've been considering before, what are called the solid cancers or solid tumors, like breast, prostate, lung, and bowel, uh, these cancers should be seen as disseminated diseases right from the beginning. So one of the repeated themes that came up in the previous talks I I talked about was the need to catch these solid tumors early before they were disseminated uh, through the body. And if they're localized, you could then cut them out uh, or otherwise deal with them in a very localized way. The cancers we're talking about today uh, are ones which are actually disseminated from the beginning. Uh, And therefore, surgery uh, is really relatively unimportant for the treatment of these cancers. But drugs are absolutely essential. And with drug treatment, the outlook, as I say, can be very good, despite the fact these are disseminated cancers. So it is a different approach to thinking about them uh, than you would have uh, in, in previous talks. Chemotherapy, which is the mainstay, although it's being overtaken in some areas of treatment, uh, dates back really quite uh, some uh, time in history. It was first uh, really used in leukemia, and I'll come back to this later in the talk, uh, back from 1948, uh, using a group of drugs called the antifolates. And they were, in turn, because medicine follows twists and turns, uh, possible because of work done by this remarkable scientist, Lucy Wills, Uh, who discovered folate when she was looking at why were pregnant women anemic in India. So uh, the pathway there uh, went through to uh, the first chemotherapy drugs, uh, first ostensibly used by this uh, American physician, uh, Sidney Farber. And the basic principle of the chemotherapy drugs, and I'll talk about a few uh, more of them in the next slide, uh, is relatively simple. Uh, They kill cells that are dividing. And since cancer cells are dividing very rapidly and often in an uncontrolled way, they are more sensitive to these drugs and slower to recover. So the good effects that you get from chemotherapy are are most effective where you have a rapidly dividing cancer. And many of the uh, cancers we'll be talking about today are very rapidly dividing. They have to be given uh, in combinations When they're given alone, cancer cells can develop resistance in the same way that uh, bacteria, for example, can develop resistance to antibiotics, they they evolve it. So giving different kinds of drugs together in combination uh, reduces the risk of this happening. And they're generally given in cycles. They're given in short pulses over a period of time, allowing time between those cycles for people's normal cells to recover uh, and for them to feel uh, better. Now, the path by which these various drugs have come uh, into treatment has been uh, very varied. Uh, and I've just given some of the drugs which are used in these cancers and, indeed, some other cancers and where they came from. So uh, a drug for called vimblastine, for example, uh, was originally uh, derived from the Madagascar periwinkle back in the 1950s, Uh, uh, also in the 1950s, a a drug called doxorubicin, uh, which was from a kind of bacteria found around uh, this castle, Castel del Monte, Uh, and a different uh, bacteria gave rise to a drug, uh, again, which is quite widely used, called bleomycin. Uh, And uh, at the bottom here, a drug called cyclophosphamide, also from the 1950s. This was actually derived from the nitrogen mustards Uh, which are a group of chemicals initially derived, in fact, from uh, things very similar to mustard gas. So the direction from which these drugs have come uh, is very varied. And the drugs work at multiple points along the stages where a a cell is dividing. Uh, There are drugs like cyclophosphide that may damage the DNA. Uh, There are anti-tumor antibiotics Uh, And these attack enzymes. Uh, And then there are things like vimblastin, which stop cells making copies of themselves. So these drugs have multiple effects, and they're used in combination. People, when they're uh, aware that their relatives or that they are going to have uh, chemotherapy, understandably, have real concerns about the side effects of these drugs. And they do uh, all have Uh, significant side effects the biggest impact is on cells that are rapidly dividing uh, and that means they're particularly uh, likely to have effects on the gut on hair follicles which are growing uh, on the mouth which turns over its cells quite rapidly and indeed on the bone marrow and that therefore means they can lead to uh, impacts on the immune system because the effect on the bone marrow uh, bleeding and bruising uh, some diarrhea or constipation due to the effects on the gut and hair loss. But most of these last for short periods, some of them uh, a few days, Uh, some of them uh, more a matter of weeks, but they are usually short-lived. In a minority of cases, but it is really a minority of cases, people may have, for these uh, diseases, radiotherapy. Uh, And radiotherapy also damages dividing cells and particularly cancer cells. And these cells are in the dro- the cancers we're talking about today are often very what's called radiosensitive. That means radiation can kill them relatively effectively. Uh, and in these groups of uh, cancers, leukemias uh, and lymphomas, um, the radiotherapy may be localized, particularly in some lymphomas, but if there's a very heavy concentration in one particular area, or more general. Radiotherapy is actually remarkably well tolerated by many people uh, with often only local effects and profound tiredness. Tiredness is extremely common uh, but uh, does uh, recover and they may have some sore skin around the areas where the radiotherapy uh, is being used. Uh, In more general radiotherapy uh, people can have uh, rather like with the chemotherapy drugs um, some nausea some diarrhea uh, but again these are generally relatively short-lived. Uh, People aren't radioactive, and uh, they will make usually a full uh, recovery back, although there may be longer-term side effects in a minority of people uh, as with chemotherapy drugs. But radiotherapy is only used in a minority of cases, uh, and we're going through these as I go through the different diseases. And the final um, uh, sort of part of the study The group of things which in a sense is traditional treatment for these diseases, and we'll come on to the uh, developing ones as we go through the rest of the talk, um, is stem cell transplants. This is only actually used now in a minority of cases, uh, often in people who've relapsed or in particularly uh, aggressive uh, disease or in young people um, who have uh, many years of hopefully of life ahead of them. And what this really is, is that some of the highly effective uh, treatments will kill the cancer, but will also kill healthy bone marrow cells. And therefore, of course, you need your bone marrow to continue uh, to survive and thrive. Uh, And what happens is people have the stem cells, which, remember from that uh, slide at the beginning, are what is the precursor for all the blood cells, Uh, re-put back into their system, re-transplanted into them by usually being infused into their blood. And there are two ways stem cells are produced. Uh, They are either harvested from you as part of treatment. So before you have the treatment, stem cells are removed from the blood and then put back again. They're your own ones. You're not likely to react to them. Uh, Or in some cases, particularly some of the leukemias, they may be from a matched donor. So someone uh, donates their Uh, their stem cells, and then they're what are are, um, used uh, to reseed your bone marrow. So uh, those are the three things, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and stem cell treatment. But as I'll come on to, uh, treatment is developing well beyond these now uh, in a number of uh, the diseases we'll be talking about. We'll start off with the lymphomas. These are cancers of the lymphatic system Uh, and of lymphocytes, which are white cells which are very common within them. And the lymphatic system, which runs in parallel to your your blood system, drains fluid and waste and helps to fight infection. And you have uh, lymphatics, as on this old woodcut uh, on the right... Uh, all the way through your, blood, your body and it helps to drain fluid to provide, prevent you from having uh, sort of puffy uh, e- extremities as well as, as I say, getting rid of some of the most uh, important infections and toxins. And you have lymph nodes uh, and in these uh, there is uh, the ability to fight infections. And the first way in which people often uh, notice or their partners or doctors notice they have lymphoma is where they have glands which uh, are raised uh, in the distribution of the lymph gland distribution. So that's particularly uh, in the armpits, and the neck, uh, and in the groin. But the other situations you can, people can pick it up is they ha- if, they ha- if it invades the bone marrow and then they can get the symptoms like problems with infection or fever or um, bruising, um, or it may be picked up incidentally. Lymphomas are broadly divided into two groups, Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, but there are many types of lymphoma, and they all have a slightly different or may have slightly different treatment. We'll start off with uh, Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, This was first described by Thomas Hodgkin, quite close, in fact, to where I'm talking uh, today, in in 1832. uh, And then subsequently, uh, diagnostic uh, ability to pick it up were improved, particularly uh, the discovery in 1901 by this remarkable woman, Dorothy Reed, uh, of the Reed-Sternberg cell. Uh, and this was important, particularly at that point, because swollen lymph nodes were mainly due to TB, but you also had to detect those people who had something else. And what she did, found out was this rather strange cell, the Reed Sternberg cell, uh, actually could help differentiate from uh, infection. Uh, still used for diagnosis today. Um, lymph nodes uh, are swollen especially of the neck and shoulders in 80-90% to 90% of cases but people may also have what's called B symptoms and these, these happen in many of the, uh, the lymphomas and leukemias we'll be talking about that's night sweats, really bad night sweats drenching those sheets not just a little bit of clamminess uh, weight loss, fatigue fever or itching which are new and it's important to stress these are new onset symptoms that persist for a number of weeks. The age distribution of Hodgkin's lymphoma comes in two peaks there's a peak in young adulthood late adolescent and early early adulthood and then a second peak in older age. And when um, there's a possibility that something, someone could have lymphoma, and most people who got swollen lymph nodes do not have lymphoma, to be clear, uh, then they may need a biopsy, if it looks a suspicious one to the doctor who sees them, uh, where it's looked at under the microscope. Uh, and they may have scans, something called a PET scan, where a particular uh, kind of uh, chemical is taken up by the cancer and then superimposed on a CT scan, what's called a PET CT. And this shows where... Uh, you actually have uh, possible lymphoma activity. And this will show how extensive the lymphoma is and, and importantly, whether it spread what's called both sides of the diaphragm, which actually has important implications for what treatment uh, is then given. The treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma is chemotherapy in almost all cases. Uh, And um, in a few cases, it may particularly where localised, uh, there may also be the use of radiotherapy. Stem cell uh, transplant uh, is only going to be used in a very small minority in relapse cases, but chemotherapy is central. And how much chemotherapy for how long uh, will depend on the stage. In early disease, stages one or two, where it's localised to one area or uh, two areas close to the diaphragm, uh, you have less treatment Uh, than in stage three or four, where it is more extensive. But remember, in all cases, it should be viewed as disseminated from the beginning. And if we look at the uh, survival for Hodgkin lymphoma now, uh, 75% of people will survive uh, 10 years or more. In stage one and two A disease, that's when people don't have the B symptoms, uh, it's called limited stage, they will have more limited treatment. Generally, two to four cycles of chemotherapy uh, might have radiotherapy. Uh, Around 90% will survive five years or more, and most of those will go on to survive a lot longer. In people who've got more advanced disease, uh, more chemotherapy is given. Uh, So this might be six or eight cycles of disease, and they might also need steroids uh, and uh, radiotherapy. But even with this more advanced disease, the great majority of people will survive more than five years and indeed beyond that. So 80% in stage three and 70% in stage four. So the majority of people who have this disease uh, will uh, for practical purposes uh, be cured of it. And if you look on the right of this, this graph shows how the survival has improved over time. This is over uh, several decades uh, and that improvement continues. Most people with Hodgkin's lymphoma can be cured. There is a particularly high cure rate in younger people. It does tend to drop off in people who get it in older age. Most of the diseases I'll be talking about today have met much less uh, impact from modifiable factors than many of the diseases I talked about previously. So, for example, lung cancer, very, very heavily uh, uh, dependent on whether people smoke, although not everybody uh, who has lung cancer smokes, but it's a very, very major risk factor. uh, say it's a modifiable risk factor. For most of the diseases I'll be talking about today, modifiable risk factors are relatively unimportant. Um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, there is a very strong association with an infection called Epstein-Barr infection, uh, and also an association with HIV disease. Um, Treatment uh, for HIV disease is important. Epstein-Barr virus, we currently don't have any way of preventing it. And if there were to be a vaccine for Epstein-Barr virus, it is possible that might have an impact uh, on this disease. But currently, uh, relatively limited uh, prospects for uh, prevention. But would a good treatment. The other lymphomas, and there are many, are, are the non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And they can be broadly divided into the fast-growing, what's called high-grade lymphomas, and the slow-growing, low-grade lymphomas. Most of them arise from uh, B-cells or their precursors, uh, but you can also have much more rarely uh, T-cell lymphomas. Uh, And uh, I've given here just some of the distribution of some of the types of uh, uh, leukemias and lymphomas, or CLL, uh, uh, which you actually uh, may get. Starting off with high-grade lymphoma... So these are the fast-growing ones. The most common symptoms are swollen lymph glands that don't go down after a couple of weeks. So if it's been there for years, then it's not uh, likely to be lymphoma. And if it comes up, uh, particularly with an infection, painful, goes down again, uh, then it's not likely to be lymphoma. So these are significant uh, swollen lymph glands that don't go down after a couple of weeks. They're usually not painful, uh, and they can occur in the groin, armpit, or neck. May get some B symptoms, these fever uh, and these severe night sweats. High-grade lymphoma is most common in older people. Uh, Diagnosis is usually by biopsy, uh, and again, uh, like Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, PET-CT may be used for staging. Now, the aim of uh, treatment for high-grade lymphoma is complete remission, which for practical purposes can be seen as a form of cure. So that is to get no detectable lymphoma but to do so with drugs with the minimum side effects that you can manage in a particular situation. And this is uh, largely achieved by chemotherapy, most commonly a chemotherapy regimen, quite relatively long-standing one called CHOP, which combines the drugs I've written down here, uh, but also with antibody therapy, uh, which is aiming aiming at a particular marker on these cells called the CD20 uh, cell. And uh, this is in particular. I come on to this uh, a drug uh, called rituximab, uh, and uh, what you can see on the right uh, is the difference in survival between people who are just given chemotherapy, chop, and those who are given chop with rituximab, and this leads to a better outcome. And in some cases, people may have uh, stem cell transplants. Uh, that's much more, uh, much again a minority. So. This is the next group of drugs I just thought it was worth pausing on because these are different from the chemotherapy drugs, targeted antibodies, and they work in two different ways uh, at the moment, and there the may well be more in the future. The first uh, is drugs like rituximab, and they target their antibodies, straightforward antibodies. They are monoclonal, they, therefore they look at a single target, against CD20, which is found on the B cells, uh, which are the main cause. Uh, and uh, when that's given, they'll lock to the, uh, the, 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 uh, the cancer cells, the lymphoma cells, and that will mean that the immune system, which clears cancer cells in, under ordinary circumstances, recognises them and starts to have an effect uh, on trying to clear the cancer cells. So the, the chemotherapy and your immune system, in a sense, work in concert. C- concert. A different approach to this is a slightly different uh, drug, uh, and I'm I'm going to give the example of Brentuximab, uh, and this targets a slightly different uh, marker, CD30, uh, but what this does is, attached to it, uh, is a highly potent chemotherapy drug, and therefore it locks onto the cell and kills the cell, but uh, if it was just given in general, generally into the blood, uh, the drug would be too powerful, it would actually cause too much damage, and that would the, the advantage of the antibody is it delivers the, the toxic load very precisely to the cells that you wanted actually to do so. So these are two different approaches to antibody treatment. There are a number of other uh, lymphomas, and I will just h- highlight one uh, one because it has two important uh, aspects. Uh, and that's something called Burkitt lymphoma, uh, which actually, again, actually has several different uh, types it's predominantly a rapid-growing lymphoma of children. So this is one of the childhood uh, lymphomas. It's rare in the UK, around 200 cases a year, but it's still non, the commonest non-Hodgkin lymphoma in children. It's what called sporadic type. However, in Africa, uh, it is much more common, and it's particularly common in areas where EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, the virus we talked about before, and malaria... Overlap, So it appears to be something to do with the interaction of those two infections. Um, it's called endemic type and can infect the face. You can see children with really quite swollen faces. Uh, also, people, the third, third risk is people who are immunosuppressed. And in this childhood lymphoma, uh, people use, again, a combination of chemotherapy drugs and rituximab, and the survival is very good. Survival for limited stage 1 and 2 Burkitt lymphoma is over 90%. Uh, and survival for advanced age is still 80 to 90%. So this is an example of a childhood lymphoma where the outlook is actually very good, provided people are treated. So those are high-grade lymphomas. Uh, now we move on to low-grade lymphomas. These are much more slow-growing, and they're mo- most commonly in people uh, aged uh, over 60. They can present with enlarged nodes, uh, or these B symptoms, the drenching, night sweats, and fevers and more generalized symptoms, Uh, sometimes people can have very mild symptoms or even have no symptoms at all and be diagnosed because a blood test done for other reasons uh, demonstrates that they actually have abnormal blood cells and then people go on to investigate it. So they may be diagnosed by biopsy and then, uh, as with other um, uh, lymphomas, have uh, staging tests. Now, although uh, this is a different approach to the high-grade lymphomas, Uh, Although full remission, where for practical purposes people are cured, can occur, the main aim of these slow-growing, low-grade lymphomas is control. People can live for many years with a low-grade lymphoma, receiving intermittent treatment, and 55% will live 10 years or more. Uh, They may not need treatment at all initially, it may just be a matter of actively monitoring them, Uh, But in due course, uh, many will go on to need chemotherapy and targeted uh, CD20 antibody therapy, uh, which may also be used for maintenance therapy. Occasionally radiotherapy, sometimes stem cell treatment. But if you look at the graph on the right, what you can see here is that in younger people, the outlook for people with low-grade lymphoma living with their disease, as you live with many other chronic diseases, uh, can be to live for very many years with really relatively little impact on survival, uh, slightly uh, greater impact uh, in, in people who are 80 or above. And a number of targeted therapies may be relevant, and I'll just give, again, an example. So these are different sort of uh, drug group. So targeted therapies are not anti- antibodies, or these, these chemical ones are not so much antibodies, nor are they chemotherapy. They're not actually killing dividing cells. Uh, And the example here uh, is what's called a proteasome inhibitor. Uh, And these are things, proteasomes uh, help the cell to break down waste products, particularly proteins that are no longer needed. If you have this drug, it blocks that. The proteins build up in the cell and it dies. And these are particularly important uh, for some lymphomas, like something called mantle cell lymphoma, and as we'll come on to, uh, myeloma. And yet there are other targeted therapies if relapse occurs. So you've got the chemotherapy, radiotherapy, stem cell therapy, and it, then antibody therapy, and then the targeted therapies uh, with chemicals such as these. So those are the, lymph- the lymphomas. Let's move on to the leukemias. Leukemias are cancers of the white blood cells. And rather like with lymphoma, although the nomenclature is slightly different, the, the, the rapid ones, the acute uh, Leukemias and the chronic ones, which are the slow growing, uh, in terms of their onset, and they are divide. They depending on which pathway from the stem cell is it down the lymphocytic pathway down, which goes down to lymphocytes, or the myeloid one that goes down to uh, granulocytes and red cells and platelets. So those are the two pathways. They're either lymphocytic, so acute lymphocytic or chronic lymphocytic, or myeloid, acute myeloid or chronic myeloid. Those broadly are the four groups. There are many subtypes uh, within them. Let's start off with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. It's the the commonest chronic leukemia. Uh, There are just under 4,000 cases a year in the UK, mainly in people over 60. It's very rare under 40, uh, and it's more common, twice as common, in fact, uh, in males. It's caused by a variety of genetic mutations, And the effects of it are both because people have too many B lymphocytes, so they crowd out other things in the bone marrow. They therefore can cause all the problems of uh, tiredness and bruising and uh, so on. Uh, And also the lymphocytes that they have are not working very well, so they can get an increased risk of infections. It's usually diagnosed uh, on a blood film. The outlook for people with CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, is that around 85% of people survive for five years or more in the UK, and the younger people are, the longer the the survival uh, tends to be. The genetic mutations people have are quite a good guide to how long people survive for. So, uh, for example, one genetic mutation may be associated with a median survival of over 20 years, whereas uh, some at the other end of the scale may be uh, uh, associated with the median survival uh, of seven years. Uh, Although with all of them, uh, the expectation is as time goes by, treatment improves, survival will improve. But uh, as I say, for some of the genetic mutations, in fact, the survival is extremely long. In people with early disease, with CLL, uh, no treatment may well be best, and this is proven by uh, uh, trials. Trials have demonstrated that in many early early forms of the disease, uh, no treatment uh, is just as good as treatment. So why give people the side effects of treatment? Because at this point, no treatment is the best approach. As the disease becomes more advanced, the aim is to control Uh, And it is important, therefore, because it's a long-term issue uh, to actually have uh, the best side effect profile possible. And the clinical state of the person uh, and the mutations of the cancer guide survival. And usually, this will be some combination of newer targeted therapies, and I've given a list of some of the names, uh, including one we've come across already, for example, Rituximab. Uh, And um, with these the outlook uh, is very good. So many people uh, may have chemotherapy, but uh, not all. Uh, And um, the uh, outlook for the combination for most people uh, is a long number of years uh, living with their disease. Down the other pathway, the myeloid pathway, heading towards uh, monocytes and granulocytes uh, in particular, um, you have chronic myeloid leukaemia. And the, this is much rarer, around 800 new cases a year in the UK. Um, the outlook over time has massively improved for this disease. as uh, around a 75% reduction in mortality since the 1970s. This gets more common as you grow older. Uh, and again, it has very similar symptoms, infection, tiredness, bruising, bleeding, night sweats, uh, and bone pain. Again, mainly diagnosed by blood film. This one one has got a number of uh, important differences to some of the other uh, leukemias we're talking about, but it is essentially uh, one group of diseases around one particular chromosomal uh, change, although the variety of ways it can be achieved. Uh, First described by uh, Janet Rowley in the 1970s, this is what's called the Philadelphia chromosome. And what happens is a bit of one chromosome breaks off and sticks onto another chromosome it's not inherited this is acquired in lifetime and the resulting mutated protein uh, causes the disease and what happens is that uh, it produces what we what we know is this is driven by a particular chemical a particular protein and therefore the key drugs are drugs which counteract uh, that effect and they're what call the tyrosine kinase inhibitors Uh, And the one which really started uh, us down this path was this this drug, uh, Initimab, a small molecule. Um, It was a drug by design, so unlike many of the drugs I talked about earlier on, which came from a variety of rather random routes into medicine, uh, given the trade name uh, Gleevec, which is what a lot of people know it by, uh, although there are now um, uh, other forms of it. Uh, And it blocks this protein. And the overall survival uh, before People had this drug, and after it was transformational. There are relatively few drugs in medicine which are transformational, uh, in, in that, uh, what usually happens is you get small improvements, and one improvement builds on another improvement, and over time, you get massive improvements, but they're made up of lots of different steps. Uh, this drug. Uh, initimab and all the drugs that went alongside it have uh, been transformational and you can see on the bottom here the difference in survival between those on and not on this drug but it is an extraordinarily expensive drug and uh, cost is a major issue i'll come back to this issue of cost in the last lecture series of this whole term which is on, on the future of health and the nhs Uh, And in the USA, it reached a situation where this drug, which was given for many years, uh, was uh, uh, over $100,000 a year. But uh, this has transformed the outlook. Uh, And people usually started on daily treatment as a pill treatment. uh, And you can see on this graph, which is survival over time in the UK, when it was the drug was introduced. And this drug was introduced and the mortality just dropped incredibly fast. People can be maintained on this for many years. And if there's a relapse, there are other tyrosine kinase inhibitors which people can use. Much more rarely chemotherapy, stem cell transplant used, really maintained on this as a chronic disease, just as people are maintained on drugs, for example, with diabetes, uh, a chronic disease. It should be seen in that way. So you're not aiming for cure, you're aiming for really good control. Then you move on to the acute form of this acute myeloid leukemia down the same cell uh, cell, uh, pathway. Symptoms often vague, tiredness, bruising, fever, bone pain, as uh, before. Uh, Main diagnosis by blood test. They may need a bone marrow, people may need a bone marrow tract test. And then for this uh, disease, in contrast to the previous uh, chronic form, which was a single uh, Philadelphia um, chromosome, The risk stratification for this is based on factors including gene changes, chromosome changes, cell markers. A whole bunch of different things will lead to uh, uh, the uh, outlook being different um, depending on the genotype and a number of other factors. So acute myeloid leukemia is a disease of acquired genetic damage. And as you go through life, uh, you tend to get damage to um, many cells, that just happens. You accumulate genetic damage. Uh, Many of them are eliminated by the immune system as you go through. So your immune system is not only scanning for infections, it's scanning for damaged cells. So the ones with very significant damage will be destroyed by the immune system very often. Uh, But you will will get a large number of largely benign changes uh, as we go through life and age. Most of them have no consequence. But occasionally the damage starts a cell on the pathway through to uh, AML, acute myeloid leukemia. And there are lots of different routes by which different genetic uh, combinations can lead to this disease. Uh, And subgroups of cells then evolve as the disease uh, progresses. So the genes are turning, the genetic makeup may be turning over. And the outlook for people with AML is determined by the type of genetic damage. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but broadly, uh, in some cases, the outlook will be extremely good with certain forms of genetic changes, and in other genetic changes, uh, the outlook is much less good and uh, treatment will have a very different uh, impact. AML is uh, generally risk stratified when it's first diagnosed um, into uh, three different categories, and the lowest risk uh, will tend to get Straightforward chemotherapy. As you go through the higher risk groups, through the intermediate into the higher risk groups, uh, people may need um, chemotherapy but also donor stem cell transplant. And they'll need it from someone else. And with age, uh, the outlook uh, gets worse for each of these, but again, you've got the high, medium, and low uh, risk. Um, the worse the genetic damage, the worse the outlook. Uh, and as you're older, you have more difficulty, we all have more difficulty in tolerating the more intensive treatments. So it's partly the disease is more, itself intrinsically more difficult, and partly um, that we're less able to tolerate the more uh, high high intensity treatments. The improvements uh, are steady in AML, so this is different, this is much more typical, so not like this sudden step change, literally a step change with Uh, one particular drug class, but there's been a steady improvement and this is continuing and in in AML a lot of this is driven by the ability to genotype. So uh, here in the UK the NHS supports whole genome sequencing for people who've got newly diagnosed disease and this leads to better decisions about what the right treatment is, whether people should be getting transplant, identifying patients with targetable mutations um, uh, and alongside this there are a steady uh, approach to new targeted therapies, drugs carrying antibodies, uh, for example, to CD33, uh, and also in this group, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors can also be useful. So it's combinations of new drugs uh, informed by the genotype of the person who's got the disease, steady improvement over time. The other acute broad set of uh, um, uh, leukemias are the acute lymphoblastic leukemias going down the lymphoid side of the thing. Again, around 800 diagnosed in the UK. Um, These tend to be large numbers of immature lymphocytes, and uh, as with the other ones, tiredness, anemia, bruising, and fevers are things uh, which should lead to someone uh, considering it and their doctors considering it. If it's not treated it can be fatal in weeks to months, so it can really move incredibly aggressively in contrast to some of the other leukemias and lymphomas. But the outlook for those who are treated is now actually very good. For those under 14, um, uh, the the, uh, mortality uh, will be very low with over 90% surviving more than five years and having a long-term good prognosis. Uh, Less good outlook in those who are older, but actually this is mainly a disease of children. Uh, two to five uh, years is the most common age to develop it, and it's pretty rare after 24. The, if you think about um, chemotherapy for this set, or this for this dis- uh, set of diseases, or for acute for ALL uh, in general, um, the uh, initial treatments were back in the 1940s with the antifolate drugs, which I began uh, this lecture with. And what you can see in this graph on the right is what has happened over the decades. Little by little, survival has improved, starting off with just antifolates, then combination chemotherapy because of the problems of resistance, then steadily sequential studies led to improved treatment uh, till we actually get to a situation where the survival now is incredibly good uh, for the great majority of people. And now what we need to aim to do is to achieve the same very good survival but with fewer side effects. Chemotherapy is the backbone of treatment still, um, strongly influenced by the genotype that they have. Uh, and um, one difference from some, other, some of the other diseases we talked about is this disease may uh, get into the area around the brain at uh, a relatively early stage, and people may need some treatment to get rid of those cells because the, um, because the treatment, uh, the general treatment, may not actually kill cells uh, which are around the brain. This is also an area where um, science is advancing very rapidly. And again, I'll highlight a very different kind of treatment to ones we talked about, an extraordinarily uh, exciting area of science, but also a very complicated one. And this is what's called CAR-T therapy, chimeric antigen receptor cell therapy. Uh, What happens with this is our immune system attacks cancer cells, as well as infections, all the way through our lives. So all all of the people watching this, I will have, Uh, cells that could have turned into cancer cells, which the immune system will identify and get rid of. And T cells, in particular, destroy defective cells, whether it's by infection or by damage for other reasons. So uh, CAR-T therapy is when the T cells are removed from the child or adult, uh, reprogrammed to recognise the cancer cell, so inserting receptors uh, for the cancer, and then re-injected back into people. And T-cells live for many years, and they then just hunt down cancer cells for the rest of the time they live and destroy them. Uh, So if um, it works, if it's well-targeted, they'll live for many years hunting down and killing cancer cells. Uh, But obviously, if you get it wrong, and you end up with something a T-cell that's targeting uh, the wrong um, cells, that also could cause problems. So this has to be done very precisely. But this is a completely different approach to treatment and a highly effective one uh, in this disease. And it may well become important for some other diseases over time. But this is inevitably expensive. It is really a high intensity science, at least at this point in time. The final group of diseases I wanted to consider was myeloma, sometimes also known as multiple myeloma, uh, just under 6,000 cases a year in the UK. Uh, Very rare in people under 40. Uh, It's mainly a cancer of older age. And this is a cancer of what's called plasma cells. They're a a specialised form of lymphocyte that usually produce antibodies. And there are a variety of different antibodies they can produce, G, A, M, D, and E. Uh, And the antibodies attach to and lead to the killing of viruses and bacteria. That's their main function in ordinary circumstances. Myeloma is a massive expansion of a clone of a plasma cell that usually produces the same largely pointless antibody, but it's, it's there's an enormous expansion of these cells. And the consequences of myeloma is that it displaces other bone marrow cells, so rather like lymphomas and leukemias, it can lead to infections, anemia, uh, and uh, so on. It also, because it can be very extensive in the bone marrow, can lead to the bone being eroded from the inside, so it can lead to collapse of the vertebrae, what's called pathological fractures, uh, pre- compression of the spinal cord, pain in the bone. So it's Management of the bones in this disease is really very important. It can lead to lots of this protein circulating far more than uh, there should be normally in the blood. And this leads to the blood being very sticky. Uh, and this can lead to kidney damage and it can lead to clots. Um, so people can get deep vein thrombosis, for example. And also because of the effects, particularly on the bone, it can lead to very high calcium in the blood, which can uh, disrupt the ordinary um, uh, the ordinary. functioning of normal normal cells. Myeloma is usually diagnosed by blood tests and this is looking for either intact antibodies which are being produced in very large amounts or fragments of antibodies, what are called light chains and a variety of ways of doing this. There's an older test that used to be called for benz Joan proteins in the urine but that's really been superseded uh, to a large extent. People may need to have bone marrow biopsies and they may need to have uh, imaging uh, as well. Now, not everybody who is diagnosed with myeloma needs immediate treatment. This is a very, for many people, a long-term, smoldering, slow-progressing disease. And the aim in most people is long-term control and reduction of symptoms and the, site, the effects of this disease, not cure. So this is one of the ones which is managed as a chronic disease, uh, rather than ones that you're aiming to actually uh, cure it. Its natural history is to be a relaxing, remitting disease with periods of activity Uh, and periods of relative inactivity. And what people tend to have is an initial treatment, and then when there are relapses, they'll then have subsequent treatment. Uh, The most aggressive treatments, which are reserved for younger patients, and these may include stem cell transplants, but they're really uh, for a relatively small minority of people. So initial treatment and then treatments of relapse is the way that this uh, disease or set of diseases is, uh, is managed and this is usually combinations of drugs uh, and they may include a proteasome inhibitor which we've talked about before a thalidomide like drug uh, and a steroid and there are a variety of combinations of these and I've uh, I've, I've got on this, this um, slide here uh, some of the combinations. Now people when they think about thalidomide they think about uh, a disease, uh, uh, sorry uh, they think about the fact that this drug when given in pregnancy leads to very bad uh, pregnancy outcomes in, in many children and that is absolutely correct. So this is not a drug that should be given to anyone who's pregnant or might uh, be pregnant. But of course most people with myeloma are, are older and that's not usually a, a relevant consideration. Um, and Uh, thalidomide is a remarkable drug actually used for the right people it's also used in a number of other settings like uh, some kind of complications of leprosy Uh, and it stops cancer cells developing it can stop them developing their own blood vessels which is very important for them actually uh, being able to grow Um, and it can uh, stimulate the immune system to attack cancer cells so it really works in multiple ways so you've got this combination of proteasome inhibitors uh, drugs like thalidomide uh, and steroids but there are alternative combinations and antibody treatments when people relapse. So you, there's, a kind of, there's a periods of treatment and then periods of no treatment when people's disease is relatively, uh, relatively quiet. Myeloma survival is steadily improving. So over 80% of people will be alive a year after diagnosis. And from a situation uh, in the 70s where the survival at five years is about 10%, it's now over 50%. Uh, and just over 30, just under 30% at 10 years. So many people live, live for many years, uh, may well be over a decade. Uh, younger age groups tend to have slightly better survival, um, but survival is continuing to improve. So what you can see in the graph is the steady improvement over time, uh, and I think we would all anticipate and hope that that, will, that improvement will continue over the next uh, uh, many years. So in summary, um, today we've talked about a group of cancers where, in contrast to the uh, solid tumors, it's much more viewing them as systemic diseases, some to be cured, some of which are to be controlled. The outlook has improved substantially for many lymphomas, leukemias, and myelomas, uh, and I expect it to continue to improve. Some of the things that uh, are moving particularly rapidly are things like genotyping, targeted therapies, so these are not chemotherapy drugs, these are a different approach looking, targeting these, drug, these uh, disease cells very specifically, and novel treatments such as uh, CAR-T treatment. And these are steadily transforming the outlook. Uh, these come at a cost, um, but they are definitely uh, leading to significant improvements. So when someone next gives a talk about these diseases in a few years in Gresham College, my expectation is the outlook will be better still. Thank you very much.